This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days. Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 90 for Friday 26th of April 2019. I'm Jeremy Sierra. Each week I'll be joined by different guest hosts to help me discuss what's just been happening to our country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest hosts are Denise Pierco and Kieran Cummings. Hello, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Hello, welcome. <laughs> Wait, you're you're welcoming me. Well, thank you for welcoming me to your lovely your lovely home. Um, so, Kieran, uh, where, where will people know you from? On the, on um, the... Well, I suppose people mostly know me from Twitter, but also from uh, some of the articles I'd written many moons ago uh, before the 2013 election, sort of on the NBN and stuff like that. So uh, you're, you've got some expertise in being related? Uh, yeah, I'm a geek and I've been in IT for all of my life. We, we actually got the... No, we didn't. We got what they now call the NBN this week. So hypothetically, they'll be able to upload podcasts. That's well... Kind of it's, usually, previously, it was taking like what, like an hour and a half to upload like a 60 meg audio file. And sometimes you actually had to tether it to your phone to get the 4G from your phone in order to upload it. Yeah, that was brilliant. So now we've got the sort of a half-assed version of the NBN. Um, but did you see Malcolm Turnbull was in America telling Trump that he should, uh, or talking to Trump to tell him that he should invest in a 5G network? I said what that was. Yeah. Jesus, Malcolm. The I, man who gutted the NBN and, oh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did take his advice, though. I moved house to get fiber to the premises. <laughs> it is a, a complete lottery. The, the people who happened, those houses, that... that if you could find where that... I presume there is a map where you can find the actual proper NBN neighborhoods presumably houses there are worth substantially more than those elsewhere just because well actually don't no, presume presumably because you can you pay the nbn the extra to get it upgraded to fiber to the premises uh depends um i actually have uh, someone i know through twitter is trying to do that at the moment and it's being knocked back at every turn so oh really so it's not even not even like you can just you know it goes to the process of people who are rich enough to afford it can upgrade it yeah and he he quite obviously is and he makes no bones about the fact he has enough money to pay to have it upgraded but still they won't even give him a quote so it's a real premium on houses in those areas because it's not even like in other areas like you could cost the extra that it should be worth by virtue of how much does it cost to get that installed you know you shouldn't pay more than that to move into one of those areas but no apparently if it's impossible you can pay sky's the limit it's it's special rare item on ebay well, an actual fiber to the premises home the thing that i enjoyed was that a year ago, we lived in a house that had that, you know, the faux NBN installed. And then when we moved house to about five meters away, we no longer had the faux NBN installed. So we had to go back again <laughs> and had to wait a year for it to get installed. And we we're just like, really? Really? Yeah. And that, that's my big worry is that if I move house, then <laughs> I'm going to have to go back to something that's, well, I won't get 100 megabit. <laughs> So the dream, given that level of expertise, obviously what we've got you here to talk about today is uh, journalists being shit and mines. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> so th- this episode, there are other bi- audio grabs that I've got that we could talk about, but what we're going to do is the, the two things from this week that have really fired everybody up, being the um, Patricia Carvel's Barnaby Johnson. Barnaby Johnson, no, that's somebody else entirely. I don't know who he is, but... I'm, I'm mixing up with like Boris Johnson and Barnaby. Yeah. Do you know what? Actually, I can see the parallels between Boris Johnson and Barnaby Joyce, actually. They're not... Anyway, that's where my brain went. Didn't someone compare you to Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn, though, the other day on Twitter? Did they? Didn't they blame you for what's happening with Brexit? Oh, they did tell me that Brexit was... Yeah, the, the fact that Brexit hasn't happened is is my down fault. Is, my, my fault. is my fault. Which, you know, I, I had hoped that my Twitter account, with its like 3,000 followers or something, it's pathetic. I had, I had hoped that it was influential, but uh, I didn't realise it was that influential. So I'm pretty proud of myself, actually. Um... Anyway, so there was uh, Patricia Carvellis and Barnaby Joyce, and then um, in terms of examples of of this war between journalists and people critiquing them, uh, followed up by Chris Allman having a complete tantrum about it. And then following on from that, we're going to have a chat about the um, weird mind situation where it's not just Adani, and of course Bill Shorten's just this week throwing the Greens uh, under the bus as much as he can, because that worked so well for Gillard, like... Trying to rule out, demonize the Greens before the election, say you won't do any shit with them, and then have to work with them, and then be completely sabotaged by the fact that you'd promise not to. It's insanity. Brilliant. Absolute insanity. Well, I mean, this is the thing. Like, Labor should know that it's going to have to work with the Greens at various points. If you play up to... It's exactly the same as with the um, stop the boats shit. If you repeat the Conservatives' lines about refugees or about the Greens then you are locking those dumb lines in so that then if you have to do something, if you're compassionate about refugees or, so, or you have to work with the Greens, you are, you've are you just told everybody that these people are shit and you shouldn't have to work with them or do anything nice with for the refugees or anything. You've gone and made your own job harder. Like, it's really dumb to spread the other side's lies about people you should recognize that you're going to have to at some point work with. Anyway, we'll talk about them and the, the giant uh, and Clive Palmer making the deal with the libs at the same time as he wants his giant mine uh, up near Adani. And also just before the uh, caretaker mode began, the libs signing off, the federal government signing off on this giant uranium mine, which they then announced quietly on the day before Anzac Day. Oh, they they didn't even announce it. Oh, they just sort of slipped the papers out. Great. Anyway, so that's what this episode is going to cover. We're not going to, the other stuff we're going to have to deal with on on a subsequent week. But let's go back. So, journalists. Thin-skinned or the thinnest-skinned? What? What is? What was this all about, Kieran? What? what you, you, you've been fired up about this on the on the Twitters all week. Yeah. Look. Um. To me, it's 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 a failure in a profession. Um. You know, j- journalists. Uh. They're out there doing something that is important for the nation, and and I don't discount that what they do is important. But we're seeing some major failures there in in you know holding governments to account in pursuing stories that are that are there and. You know, we always get the excuse that, oh, you know, we'll get sued for defamation and stuff like that. And that's like, yeah, fine, but, you know, that's not stop journalists before going after politicians and going after a story. And, I mean, I mean, the, the Watergate thing, um, if that's what we want to call it. <laughs> okay, well, what, what, is, what is Watergate? Like, what, what, is, what is the actual story? What is it that Barnaby is being accused of having done? I, I suppose it's not actually an accusation of Barnaby himself. It's that he didn't, he's not owning up to the ministerial oversight on water sales, and these water sales are an absolute disaster. I mean, you know, eighty million dollars for water that's never going to appear again. You know, well, not never, but it's very unlikely that it's going to be a yearly event. You don't get flooding like this every year. So, what was the water they were buying, and why was the government buying the water from? I don't quite. 
what what's the what's the purpose of it's all it's all a bit opaque. It's just that there's eighty million dollars being spent buying water sounds shonky, but what exactly is it? Well, see, this is the thing: eighty million dollars to buy water is not a problem, and and Labor did the same thing. They spent three hundred million dollars to buy. I think it was 240 gigalitres of water. But this was environmental flows. This was stuff that irrigators were regularly taking from the river. And from my understanding, the water that Barnaby bought was floodwaters that had been captured by um, dams upstream. And the water's never going to get to the river. That's the thing. It's it's. Yeah, there's no dam. There's no method for getting it to the river other than, quote-unquote, overland flows, yeah. where they basically release it and expect it to just make its way to the river. So hang on. We gave eighty million dollars to what, landowners who'd caught some water. But they're not. It's not really specifically landowners, as it is big corporations. Like when you say landowners, you think of a farmer who owns land who happens to be irrigating. Hang on. So it's- they sold us water that is located on their properties, and they didn't deliver it. They and we spent eighty million dollars. Well, for- they delivered it in the sense that they sold it and they let it flow off their their properties. You know, and that's you know, it's not going anywhere. It's going. It's not going into the rivers. It's Where did it go? It's not in- yes. And in other places, and so some of the other cases that they're talking about and that Barnaby keeps referring to is where irrigators sold water rights so that they have a right to take a certain amount of water and they say, no, 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 we won't take it. We'll let you buy back our right to take the water from the river. Right. No, okay. Well, I, that's And that's kind of what I thought it was. I thought it was more to do with that... Um, these the irrigators have got these rights to water very cheaply, and the government then buys them back very expensively, like you know the cubby station that's taking more water out of the Murray Darling system than the bloody you know Sydney Harbour. Yeah, and and this is the problem. Like we we do have a a, a serious issue with with uh, cotton farmers taking water when you know it's it's not the natural environment for cotton, but it is the best environment to grow it to have less loss of crop, and that's you know that's why they grow it in the in the arid climates because that's good for, for cotton growers, not good for the environment. Um, you know, and, and I can understand why a government wants to buy it back. It's, it's a good practice. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's expensive and it's going to cost a lot to get this, get the Murray Darling fixed. And I don't think it's ever going to be truly fixed, but at the same time, you've got to think about what are you, are you getting value for money? $80 million. And this was the price is double what they, what labor paid for actual water licenses, but $80 million for, for, for something that's never going to get to a river. And, you know, is, you know, dependent on flooding is just, it's just insane. It's like, you might as well just hand the $80 million to these people and say, Oh, we don't really need anything. Cause it's the same thing. One of the big issues is, as Kieran said, it's flood water, and it's being collected via, basically, they build levee banks and pump it into dams, and all the photographic evidence shows that the levee banks haven't been taken down, so when they release it out of the dam, how is it going to get back to the river if it's... Well, I was going to ask, like, how are they delivering still, this water that we've supposedly spent a lot of yeah, money to buy? And the license only applies to their property, so if the water runs down off their property, so, for example, there's a big cotton farm next to them, the cotton people can just take it and pump it into their dam. Not just, not just can, they will. <laughs> yes. All right, so that seems moronic. So uh, this all came up uh, gradually over the last few weeks. People have been sort of digging into it and sort of trying, yelling at the uh, journalists for not covering it enough. And then they've sort of started covering it to the point where you know, it's now a, a fairly prominent story. Um, and then on Insiders last Sunday, uh Carvelis receives a text message from Barnaby Joyce in the middle of the program defending yeah, himself. Look, to me, um, 
I don't think it's wrong that a journalist and a politician have to phone numbers. You know, that's that's what happens. Yeah. But I think it would seem inappropriate that Barnaby SMS during a program. That was just. <laughs> I mean, what what him to do this? Well, he can he can text whatever he likes. The isn't the judgment issue there? And and I know this is I don't think this is a total hanging offence, but I, I, you would the problem there is um, he's getting to is Carvelis then just repeating it verbatim as if it's evidence of anything. It's like um, I don't know if you remember back from a couple of oh, a couple of months ago where um, George Pell was had found guilty and he's appealed, and one of the things that he, they were arguing was that. Um, he doesn't have to give evidence. He's, he's, you know, defendants don't have to give evidence, but um, the jury, he should have been arraigned in front of the jury. What they wanted was uh, they're saying it wasn't fair that the jury didn't get to hear him saying his piece of "I'm not guilty," um, and the only way that they would have heard from him would be for him to actually be in a position where he got to be cross-examined, and that they, he thinks that's unfair. And it's almost like that's what Barnaby's doing here. Is like. I wanted to just say my bit and get it repeated for me by a journalist, so not even from my mouth, but said as if it's sort of you know a bit more credible, without you know being interviewed and being asked difficult questions and having it actually be um, you know what I'm claiming be tested. And I think it's like at the point where journalists are just repeating what somebody's just set them on text, then they're being stenographers and not journalists. Yeah, and I I think that's a problem with journalism these days is that it it is becoming stenography and not actually. Um a sort of filter for um, political, uh, you know, rhetoric and you know policy. It's just you might you might as well publish press releases. But is that part of the direction of the people who own the the journalistic outlets? Like you look at the people, what you're working for. You're working for the Australian. You're working for News Limited. They have their own. They have definite agendas that they're pushing. I, I suspect that's not the case with um, Carvelis on the ABC. I, I do suspect, I mean, I'm fairly confident that if you're working for the Daily Telegraph or the Australian, you're not being. Yeah, you're, you're the type of stories you can run as a journalist are quite. They, they have to have a certain slant, or they're not getting published, and you're not getting a job. But um, and I also am fairly conscious that you know even before the nine takeover of Fairfax, part of the corporate influence on that was. You just run people into the ground so that they don't have time to do actual journalism. They just have to repeat what they're told because they just simply don't. You don't have to give them directives to not go and do dig into things more more deeply. They just don't have the time to do it. But then Carvelis did go ask him some tough questions. Yes. Carvelis so, did interview him and he went off the rails. Yes. So you guys have both heard uh, his... Barnaby, so Barnaby... It sounded like he was sort of ringing off angrily whilst drunk from the road, you know, from, not from not drunk on the road, but drunk near a road. Very angry man, and, and Carvel's trying desperately to keep him uh, on track. So I, obviously Carvel's was then um, putting that up as how do, this all of you people who are mocking, oh, you Twitter scumbags who are following me and mocking me for the um, receiving the text message. Here's here and, and her journalist friends were like, oh, here's some genuine. Here's here's the here's the journalisms. You didn't trust her, but look, listen, she gave him a hard time. Yeah, look, um. I'm not the biggest fan of, of, of Carvelis. I, I don't particularly like her style, things like that, and, and that's that's my personal preference. But I do think that I, she did a great job of not losing her shit over this. You know, I, I, I know I wouldn't have kept my cool um, having a shouty man go off at me for, you know, 30 minutes. It was just... I, I, I just can't even think of why he would have called up and done that. It's just, I, I don't think he was drunk. I think he was just angry, just that angry and that unhinged at the time that he thought this was the best way to get people off his back. 
Well, I didn't think he'd think he thought Carvelis would be so hard on him. And I also think that he thought the points he was making, you know, that Burke and Penny Wong, they did this too. It's not just me. I was just told to buy back. Like some of my favorite lines are the, we were told to buy back the water, so we bought it back. Uh, we don't, By the Labour government in yeah, Queensland. We don't, look, we don't look at people who they're married to or what they're wearing when we buy something from them. Like, you know, why they didn't look into who owned the company or who was in the share board of, board of directors. And also that he was just the minister. He's in charge of policy. He's not in charge of these details. He's not in charge of buying it back. And it's like... I'm not sure that he's wrong, though. I'm not sure that, that the, um, the, the idea that people who might be nationals or liberal voters... Um, as soon as they hear, oh, Labor did the same thing. This is these are people that Labor sold money to. Labor sold thing, you know, paid more money. I reckon that's probably enough to neutralise the issue in the minds of those people. Actually, I, I don't, I don't think that he, I, if they hear any of that interview, I think that those mes- those messages did get out, and I think that he will. I think well, he succeeded in what he was trying to do there. He looked like a dickhead to the rest of us, but the rest of us were never going to vote for him in the first place. True, but I also think that it's a big ask to say that it's not his responsibility to know anything about the sale, because it is. The minister doesn't sign off on anything without a thorough briefing, and if you haven't been briefed very, like, because in the end, the buck does stop with you, and that's one of the things. Carvel but it, but again, you're assuming that people vote on the basis of ministerial responsibility in competent <sighs> government. Yes, I don't. do. Yep, they don't. Like people aren't voting for Barnaby Joyce on the basis of competent government. They're voting voting on the basis that they hate the Labour Party. Oh, good point. It's not, and it's it's actually not even that. It's that they've been voting national since they were a kid, and their parents voted national. And you know, it's it's just this cycle of of, of almost a Stockholm syndrome with the with the rural areas is that they th- they see the nationals and the nationals put out these brilliant ads that say, you know, we're for you farmers. But, you know, you see those interviews where, um, I think it was McCormick got asked, you know, what have you done that benefits farmers? Yeah, it was Wally Dilley. Farmers we, we, and miners, and he couldn't even answer it. And yeah, it's like, well, we, had that, we had that on a previous episode. Yeah, it yeah no, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? Um, I would, see, that one, I would like to see them broadcasting, you know, that, that should be being played in all those electorates repeatedly. Like, that should sort sort any other argument. Basically, the Labour Party should, in all the rural electorates with national people, just simply be playing that footage of Michael McCormick being unable to site a thing that he, an occasion where he's ever put farmers over my over large agribusiness and big miners like he can't he couldn't do it that that yeah that would be effective because one thing they, they don't like the city slickers but they also don't really like being sold out to big companies either no but the other thing you have to remember is they're also working on i think a a similar combination that you get with people who vote republican in the u.s which is they're voting for social conservatism yeah, but those, I, and I think, but I don't think that's such a big sway um, now that marriage equality has been done. Mm. That's why they try desperately to try and make safe schools an issue and so forth. But even then, it's and and try to you know bash trans people and they, they like as on a, as day. a oh god yeah the talking of shitty journalism the front page of the Daily Telegraph on Anzac Day yeah. That, I mean, everybody involved in that paper should basically... They're, they're either terrible people or they should have quit by now. Like, you can't yeah. work for that shit rag. Like, oh, sorry, what I'm describing is this front page that was bashing the ALP for not being um, hostile enough to trans people. It was this feral... It was horrible. Like, on the same day, they're like, there's a political truce for Anzac Day. Well, <laughs> I... I have a friend on Twitter who is an intersex activist, and they pointed out that this doctor who... Um, is very much against, you know, oh, the, the surgery on young children, which isn't actually happening. Um, oh doesn't God, ever say anything would not be against surgery on young children who present as intersex at birth. You know, he would he would support that. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. It's like uh, you're making the decision for a child at that stage. Uh-huh. Um, and, I mean, 
I suppose back to the journalism aspect of this is is that that you know when you see stories like this, this speaks to the core of the failure of journalism these days. Is that you know you've you've not got people trying to find out the the truth or the core of an issue of a policy or things like that. They're just looking for an angle, and the angle is always okay. Is it going to be political? That's going to serve my paper. Is it going to be political and serve the people that I am close to in Parliament? Is it you know and and it's not it's not actually doing journalism. It's it's you know, it's incitement. It's mm. it's you know just reprinting whatever you hear, and that's that's not how you you report. You have to find some, try to find the truth. And I'm not saying to be objective. That's that's an impossibility as a human being. We can't possibly be truly objective, mm. but we can stifle some of those subjectivities that we have when it comes to topics. You know, um, you know, as as much as I want to to brag on Carvelis for for what she's done, I did think she did a good job of. Of, of pushing Barnaby to, to answer questions. Like, she literally spent the whole time answering, asking one question of him, and he didn't even answer it. Mm. Yeah. The bigger issue I have with Carvelis is uh, when, what we talked about uh, in a previous episode. I think it was, like, episode 61. It was the, uh, probably the most recent one uh, I did with Dave. And there, we've got some audio there of Carvelis talking to Raph Epstein on ABC, and she's talking about how she finds it infuriating when the politicians tell her one thing, uh, and then they go out and they say stuff that she knows is not true based on what they've told her, and that um, that's infuriating. She she has to respect her sources and and uh, not expose them. And I'm like, why? Like, I, I I had a bit of a discussion with Jenna Price this week about it because she, her her view is that um, you you have to sort of softly softly to to actually get the big revelations. You've got to actually work with these people on the little things. Um, to find out the big things. But, I mean, surely journalists should be using some kind of judgment and basically saying to these people, I'm not your counsellor. If you tell me things, if you're not whistleblowing, obviously whistleblowers need protection as sources because otherwise you don't find out that stuff. But if it's a journalist, if it's a politician going to a journalist and telling them, um, making claims about their colleagues or spinning political bullshit, why should the journalist... The journalist should basically work on the on the basically convey to people where I'm not nothing is off the record. If you talk to me, it's on the record, unless you you know talk to me ahead of time and say explain to me why this certain thing I should respect to be off the record. But the default should be no. What you say to a journalist is on the record. It's like going to the cops and being like, look, um, I'm just telling you about a crime. No, no, it was off the record. It was off the record. Don't no, like they. You have to. The only times when. People, you know, journalists or cops or people hearing uh, confessions being told things that the rest of us don't know. The only time that they should be like, but we'll protect you, is when there there is a greater public interest in that confidence being protected. And it is in the case of whistleblowers who don't have protections. Um, but for some reason, but, but I don't really think that's the case with a lot of the political stuff that these that, that I think is what Carvels was talking about. The stuff that she knows when, but, you know, it's more, that sort of stuff is more the who voted which way in cabinet and what games they played and who voted for what person. Fuck that shit. Expose it. That's, I, I mean, that's, that's worthless journalism in the first place. Yeah. And, and I think this is, you've highlighted something here is that they, they are getting these little tidbits, but they're not, not getting the big stuff. And it's like, yeah. okay, if someone's being your source for these little tidbits and they're not giving you anything big, then just tell them to go away and that you're not going to no longer help them to, you know, alleviate their guilt about how bad they are, you know, and that's because that's all it is. It's, it's, 
there's this mateship between the press gallery and 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 politicians, and they they I'm not saying that they all work together against us, but there's certainly a, a bit too cosy of a relationship there, and and you know politicians get away with doing anything as long as they give these little tidbits and it's like well that's not worth anything it's not yeah. worth knowing who voted for what in in cabinet i don't want journalists who are worried about access having access with the politicians implies to me that you've been doing their shit at our expense mm. i don't i want journalists who the politicians don't want to talk to i want journalists who you know when it gets to a press conference they don't want to hear the questions from that journalist because they know that that journalist is going to push them on stuff Th- those are the journalists i want to watch those are the journalists who I want to you know, contribute funds for, and they're the journalists who I want to you know, expand their ability to push on those politicians. And we've found, sorry, while while I'm ranting, Denise has gone and found the um, the. This is the Daily Telegraph headline on Anzac Day: Exclusive Doctor Alarm at ALP Gender Agenda, Child Sex Change Op Fears, Just dumb lies and her. Just horrific well, demonising. Speaking of, of the Daily everything. Telegraph and excellent journalism, um, isn't the Daily Telegraph uh, helping out one of our friends in Moringa? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Piers Ackerman does he does he write no, the Daily Telegraph? The Daily Telegraph giving free copies, yeah. oh! putting them into people's front yards. I'd almost forgotten about this. Yeah, yeah this. I mean, this is how, how much more a um, clear an example of of a. Um, supposed newspaper not being a newspaper but being a propaganda rag is when they are throwing out free copies into people's um, front gardens in an electorate that the liberals are struggling like that how could that how is that not a flat out admission that this is fucking one-sided LNP propaganda I I just I I really did like though uh, their rationale for it which was oh we're using this as market testing and you know trying to get more readers (laughs) and I'm like well you know I worked at Fairfax for about a year or so in, in in tech support um in the tech support role but I never heard from anyone in the business that we were giving away newspapers because that's that's yeah that's suicide do you know where you give away newspapers? You give away newspapers at places you sponsor. So at the Royal, at the at the Easter show, you give away newspapers. You give away a newspaper to first year uni students with a little sticker on it that says, "Hey, if you subscribe, you get them for like super cheap a year." Because to try to get them in, you don't. I, don't just know. I, I, I had a deal at uni where the Herald Sun for a year was like six dollars or something for yeah. the whole year, and I still think I was ripped off. Yeah, <laughs> they should. No, they didn't pay you six dollars. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so it's like it's like that John Finnamore sketch where you've got the movie studio and the you know burger chain yeah. and they, they're like negotiating how, you know, how much it's going to be for the deal where, where the burger chain has all of the, the things from the kids movie yeah. and, the, and the kids movie like has this time with the burger chain and they like agree on you know a hundred million dollars or whatever it is and they're like cool uh, how will that be and then they're not sure who's supposed to be paying who <laughs> like neither of them are sure whether that's really good or really bad yeah exactly <laughs> they both call their bosses and their bosses are like well done yeah they get back in there and they're like Damn. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that there are places where it is strategic to give out papers and there are very special occasions. Um, well, also, and, and also strategic to the matter if it's a one-sided yeah. propaganda rag. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what they're doing. Exactly. This has nothing to do with getting new uh, new readers. And it's because why would they want new readers specifically only in Moringa? Yeah, well, they, they, that's the thing. They, they don't. <laughs> I mean, anyone who, who, who reads the paper in Moringa is going to read the Australian or the local paper, which is what the Telegraph was saying. And it doesn't matter how many times you drop it on the lawn, they're not going to pick up a subscription to, like, a tabloid rag. That's just, you know... I I, I know these it's people... funny it's happening before the election. That's just weird. You know, in a seat where, you know, they're massively attacking Zali Stegall and trying to get Tony Abbott over the line. Mm. It's, it's weird that they'd be dropping that into those electorates. It's just... 
Yeah, these are the sorts of people that hated in the that in the UK hated when a lot of the broadsheets went to a tabloid format for weekday printings so that they could be read on the train without people like having them really big because they didn't want to be seen reading a tabloid uh, printed paper. I, I, I suspect that the um, some Daily Telegraph readers are regretting the fact that the Sydney Morning Herald went to tabloid because they're printed in the same facility and on that very same Anzac Day edition. <laughs> I don't, did you hear yeah. that? Like the the. Sydney Morning Herald editorial page was popped into the middle of a bunch of uh, Daily Telegraphs. Yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, I know how it happened. It's pretty easy to have happen when you have everything printed in the same place. It's just, yeah. and this is, I mean, you know, if you want to roll on the failure of journalism, it's it goes through the whole business, you know, down to the very printing of the paper itself. They're just, it's all about cost cutting and spreading political messages. And that's, you know, I mean, even Fairfax is as guilty of it as, as News Corp these days. You, you, say, you say even Fairfax, like like Fairfax is anything, you know, has any credibility anymore. <laughs> like it was already dying before Nine took it over, but like it's... Oh, yeah, yeah. Effectively, it's 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 a nothing now. It's it's so... You know, well, it it's it's not be... even Fairfax. We don't... I'm glad they've changed the name. They don't call it Fairfax. They just it's... call it Nine. So when I worked there, um, the, 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 the overriding message from, um, from editors and from journalists was we have to copy News Corp. And that was literally the agenda. Why? Because yeah, they, were winning. The they were winning in the this, in this Cirque. That's all that matters. They look at the circulation numbers, and that's what matters. But the thing is, News Corp have always been fluffing their circulation numbers by putting them in museums, putting it in um, for free in airport lounges. Airport lounges, yeah. yeah. And this is what bumps the circulation numbers. And yeah. It looks better. It looks better. So Throwing advertising... them for free into gardens. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. This gives advertisers incentive to advertise in News Corp. Well, that's what it all is in the, in the end. It all is all about selling the advertising space because the ad space is what keeps those things afloat. I don't think it's about that. I think it's about trying to um, influence governments and get, get concessions in the other parts of the business because I think the newspapers at this point are flat-out loss, losses. They're never going to get back the oh, advertising yeah. they had. 100% the point of it is to, um, at this point, punish Bill Shorten because he wasn't going to go and talk with Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, yeah. And, and he dared to say no, so fuck, he's dead. The, the advertising angle is dead. Like, we, we all know that advertising in print media is basically dead. And that if you're not if you're not Google, if you're not, you know, any of these massive advertising um, providers on the net, then you're not making money. You know, that's... that's... And while we're on Nine, an organisation not making any money... Um, well, sorry, obviously Nine, the TV network is. That's how they were able to buy the former Fairfax. And by the way, you know, all of you people who think that, like, Married at First Sight is a, you know, a harmless... Harmless little indulgence, of, you know, it's a bit, a bit of trash. It's trashy, but you know, it's your own. It's just, it's just a little thing. No, 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 no. That's how fucking Channel Nine had the money that they could buy Fairfax and kill, you know, one of the remaining newspaper, car, you know, organisations that wasn't Murdoch. So thanks. Anyway, Chris Ullman. Chris Ullman, the Nine Network political editor. So you, you've both, you've all seen this thing from uh, the, Michael Roll, Roland from the ABC wrote an article about uh, following on the for the Patricia Cavella stuff. Um, a bit about uh, the the journalists who are who are attacked on Twitter and, and how how stupid peasants on Twitter don't understand the, the the real job of journalists and and they they just there's just this hostile hostile bunch of left wing idiots and what what did Orman call them the the post Christian left or something Yeah yeah I mean and that that's something like straight out of like um, far right white supremacist you know literature this this Christian left the, uh, the post Christian left I mean, it's just what like, the... what is this insanity? You know, <laughs> it's like it's like people who use the, the phrase Judeo-Christian, like our Judeo-Christian heritage. Sorry, 
when exactly did the Jewish community and the Christian community work together to build a thing? Oh They've no, been... no, early, early, like like quote like Christ days, like yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They were holding hands and singing. But they haven't been. Judeo-Christian is not a thing. It's all it is is a way of saying not the Muslims and not the fucking atheists. Well, it doesn't. It's, it's not a. Judeo- it's, it's a nonsense phrase. It's like cultural Marxist. It's like political correctness. It's like these are nonsense phrases that don't have a meaning. They're just a, a rallying call for the... Mm. Anyway. Yeah, you're virtue signaling there. <laughs> there you go. Social justice warriors, because nothing worse than fighting for social justice. Jesus. Anyway. Oh, that's an insult again. So um, Roland's piece is like, Nine Network political editor Chris Ullman describes it as one of life's little joys. He'll post a tweet on federal politics, wait for the notifications of replies to build up on his phone's home screen, and then bulk delete them all of them without reading a single word. Quote, if I spend even a minute bothered by an abusive tweet, they win. If I don't engage and they spend all day work getting worked up about it, then I win, he said. It's an approach Ullman insists keeps him, helps keep him sane as social media, particularly Twitter, goes into overdrive in the midst of what he's shaping up as the most bitter election campaign in many years. Okay, first of all, hashtag block Ullman. I seriously think the way to, the way the rest of us can retort to that, if he's just like going onto Twitter to troll us and then ignore everything that anybody says back to him, block him. Block the bastard, then you don't have to see his shit. And next time he goes onto Twitter and sees people talking about that, uh, um, talking about anything, but also particularly if people are talking about Ullman, and then like half the tweets that he goes to read are blocked from him, that would be infuriating. And he wouldn't say, like, seriously, everybody, hashtag block Ullman. Block him. Just block him so that when he goes onto Twitter, he doesn't get this secret thrill for treating people with contempt. He can't see it. He can't oh block you. He can't block you if you've already blocked him. Honestly, I, I do have to give him kudos there because I mean that is an epic troll. I, I have I have never trolled someone so epic as that, and that's what it is. Is you know, humans a troll, and you know yeah. you think you think that the trolls are like you know guys who live in their basement. No, they look like human. They they the guys who look like him. I know because I've met heaps of him in my in my years. You know, from from way back in Z Geek days and IRC days through to Twitter and that. I've met my my share of trolls, and hell, I've done my my own trolling of people because I got pissed at them. <laughs> how, how ridiculous is the thing where um, journalists who don't like being criticised, they they pick out a couple of tweets, and, and um, Roland in his piece did this. He picked out some tweets where people were, you know, actually abusive and, and so forth. Because you piss people off online, or in fact, you don't piss people off. You say something, you know, political online, and you will get people saying shit because online people feel uninhibited and, and, and can be abusive and shitty. But that doesn't mean that every critical response fits in that category. And then they do this misleading misrepresentation bullshit where they like, see, these abusive tweets are representative of every criti- bit of criticism that we receive, which is not true. And that, then they don't engage in the actual criticism, which is calling out the problems in the way they are covering things. Interestingly, looking at another grab from the same article, it's the fury of the left. While the hyperpartisans are alert to any perceived bias, and that has quotation marks around it, Omen believes one side is way more offensive than the other. Well, one of the memes of the early 21st century is the rise of the aggressive right. The emergence of what I would call the post-Christian left is much more of a worry, he said. Yeah. So that's okay. Actual Nazis out there, not a worry. Post-Christian left, they're a worry. Oh, did you see all the stuff where um, Greg Sheridan was um, leading the charge of this in the Australian? But but the um, commercial media have been like after Scott Morrison in, on the on Easter Sunday invited the uh, media into watch him 
worshipping at his church. So he's like, no, no, no politicking on Sunday. This is a, a sacred day. Uh, you know, we'll have a, have a political truce for this Easter Sunday. But by the way, uh, if the media could come in here and just do a bit of a puff stuff on, uh, you know, to make me appeal to religious people so I can get some votes that way, that'd be great. So let's the media use church watching him, you know, doing the creepy waving thing. And, um, you know, the speaking in tongues and the receiving the spirit and all that stuff. Uh, and the, one of the screen grabs makes it look like he's doing a, a you know, a... a, a fascist salute so some people are like oh look here he's doing a nazi salute which is dumb but it, the rest of the shit is concerning like it is concerning you have a politician a prime minister who has these you know look they are weird views i don't the fact that lots of people hold them doesn't mean that they're not weird like, fundamentally you know but the idea that um you can only promote religion uh and being critical of it or critical of um you know absurd aspects of it is an attack on religion. It's a, it's a well, I suppose it is an attack on religion, but the idea that, that that makes them persecuted. This incredibly privileged group of people, this incredibly privileged group of organisations that have all these massive privileges under the the, um, the tax law, under the social... You know, the fact that we've just had a whole plebiscite on whether or not marriage equality... People who aren't... Nothing to do with religion, whether LGBTI people should be allowed to marry and have equal rights before the law, and um, you know, all the money that's given to the religions to attack that, to attack ordinary people. To right-wing religions, not not you know actual compassionate religions who have no desire to do that and want to promote you know actual spiritual values as opposed to uh, you know, authoritarian religion. But is how weird is it that we've got this situation where the um, most privileged religion in the country is able to get on the front page of all the newspapers portraying itself as the persecuted victims? Yeah, well, I mean that's that's. That sort of line is, is straight out of the, the, the white supremacist playbook and that, that whole persecute, persecuted Christian thing. And, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that Scott Morrison is a white supremacist. I don't think he is. But I do think this was a bait. And it was a, a clear bait by the fact that he did it when he said that there was going to be a truce. He, he got journalists in to take photos of him in church and he knew that the reaction from the public, especially the left, would be, what the hell are you, do you think you're doing? You know, why are you posting this stuff? This is not... You know, this is not on for an election campaign. You don't call a truce and go and get photo- photographers out there. And we don't care about your religion. We don't want to know about it. You know, this is something that should be personal for you. Yeah, he, but he, he wants to use it to get votes. He wants to be like, hey, I should be able to use this thing to appeal to voters who agree with me, but I shouldn't dare, I shouldn't be able to be criticised for exactly the same thing by the voters who don't agree with me. Yeah, it, it's part of the culture wars. And, and this is the thing, like, um, I was discussing it with uh, Mr. Denmore on Twitter the other day, and, and it was, it, you know, it's like, who, who is he trying to, to, to um, ostracise here? You know, moderate Christians? The left? I mean, the majority of Australians who just really don't give a shit. I mean, you look at that, the reaction from that, um, that guy who was preaching on a train. Um, I don't know if you oh, saw yeah, that. The, yeah, no, I did, in Sydney. So, yeah. uh, to, to, uh, he was having a go at abortion. Yes, having a go yes, at, yes yeah. he was having a go at abortion. And people told him to just shut up. Yeah, and, <laughs> I mean, everyone was kind of looking pretty pissed off at him. And it's like, you know, there were probably Christians in the crowd. And they just, like, don't do this on a train. Because we don't like religion being pushed in our faces in Australia. It's not something that but, we're known for. But the media consensus is that it was wrong for people to criticise him for his religion. That was religious persecution. That's what we get given as a in a response. We get told that arcing up about it and responding to it in a negative way, that that is unfair. That is an attack on religion. Whereas, hang on, I am going to drop in a bit of audio here. This is These are um, some of the, the preachers in, in New South Wales basically telling their flocks that if Scott Morrison doesn't win, we're in for, you know... <laughs> 
darkness, persecution, and, and, and the end times, basically. We are so excited to report what we believe are two direct answers to our prayer and fasting, to the avalanche of evil that is upon us and the many challenges our nation faces at this time. The Liberal Party voted in a new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, after a week of political turmoil. People here in Australia of faith believe this was a miracle of God. Scott Morrison, he's a born-again Christian. He's, the, he's probably one of the first ever born-again Prime Ministers. But it's not time to celebrate at the moment. It's time for the body of Christ to come in together as unity and this time put the differences aside. And I really see that uh, the body of Christ is going to have influence in the arena of the political arena of this nation. But it's, I've got the two P words. It's either prayer or persecution. And if the Prime Minister right now doesn't get elected in this next election, there's, there, there's going to be darkness coming. And I'm not being negative. There's going to be, the laws are going to change where darkness is going to come and there will be persecution on the church. It would seem that this is a direct answer to our prayers as we prayed against the erosion of our Christian freedoms under the forthcoming Ruddock Report. And we thank you, Lord, that the laws are coming back to the traditional righteousness. The righteousness of God has been released over this land, and we decree it in Jesus' name. So let's be really clear. It's not like the religious um, community or the religious lobby, or and I really shouldn't call it the religious lobby because what we're specifically talking about is the right-wing religious lobby. It's not like they're quiet. The it's not like they're not lobbying. Christian religious lobby. Yeah. yeah, it's not like they're not lobbying really hard. And the idea that they get should get a free pass to push this shit at quite extreme levels but we shouldn't be allowed to respond to it because that's religious persecution. That's bonkers. Yeah, look, I mean, myself, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I count myself as what's called a post-theist. Um, you know, I understand people have religion. I say, okay, you can have your religion. It's not for me. I don't, you know, I don't have a use for it. But when I see people's religion, you know, they, they, their churches look like a movie studio, uh, TV studio or a, a rock arena, I'm like, wait a minute, your book doesn't say anything about this. It says to be humble, to be, you know... Um, to, to live in poverty if you're a religious person, but you're, you know, there's all this money going around. That's, to me, that's at odds. And I think that your religion should Oh, the should prosperity be... doctrine. Yeah. That Morrison very much believes in. And, yeah. and I think that you should be criticised for that as your religion. There should be no religion that should be about money. That's, you know, religion is spirituality. You know, keep... This is, this is the whole separation that we should be having a discussion about in Australia, is that, you know, why are people like the Christian lobby, why are these Pentecostals so powerful in our political sphere, so powerful financially? Also, why are people who refer to themselves as Christians so anti-refugee and so anti-helping people and so anti-helping the poor, um, you know, raising new start, any sort of thing like that? Why, why do they support these things? Because, you know, I was raised Catholic quite very Catholic parents, and everything we learned about this basically said the opposite, you know? Jesus definitely sat there going, okay, these loaves and fishes, hungry people, this isn't a handout. You can't, you can only get this once. This is a hand up, not a handout. So you can have a fair go, so have a go. Have you seen the um, Republican Jesus video? No. Uh, just look on YouTube or Facebook or whatever for the Republican Jesus video. Truly I say unto you, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name might be letting in a murderer or a drug. Let's get her to a detention center. You know, so we can 
figure out what's going on. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And behold, now I'm all lazy and entitled. You shouldn't have done that. Do unto others as you suspect they might want to do unto you. What is a man profited if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? A lot, he has profited a lot. One soul for the whole world, that is an amazing deal. <laughs> That's a theological debate as to, you know, whether, whether the Bible supports the prosperity doctrine shit. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're rich, then you must have done something to deserve it. If you're poor, you're not doing enough for God, otherwise he'd bless you. So the, it's your own damn fault. The other thing that gets me is what Scummo has done is a very typical bully behavior. It's invite someone in, show them how you're pious, how you're great, and then the second someone critiques you, um, attack them and act like you're the one who's been wounded and and yeah. you know someone points out a flaw in your argument and they go oh god no and it's it's a similar thing to what i've been reading chris Ullman's twitter as we're sitting here similar thing to what he's been doing about uh what he's what he tweeted oh many many things <laughs> um he's so easter sunday always follows a full moon so maybe that explains the hyper partisan tools on left and right howling on social media haha <laughs> get it it's a werewolf pun Take this short test. If you passionately back a party to triumph on May 18, maybe you're the one that's biased, not the journalists you are abusing. Or, or, or maybe you've got some sense of basic moral, um, a basic moral compass, and you recognise that persecuting refugees is a shit thing to do, and therefore you want the party, the only party, sadly, that is opposed to that, to win seats so that that can stop. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've just got a basic moral compass. Who knows? Yeah. Look, I mean, this this just makes me think that that. that... Anyone who's been a member of a political party should not be a journalist because you can't possibly be a journalist and, you know, have that history. Um, it, it, it is difficult, at, at the very least, to, to hold those two things in your mind. And It feels like it's also difficult, though, to do what the ABC journalists are trying to do, which is trying to be neutral when dealing with very partisan people who will talk bullshit they'll do the, the scott morrison thing is he gish gallops he just throws shit one bit of shit after another so fast that you can't address them and you can't really respond to it without pushing back like you know if you're, if you're you know, the you know the sapling and you're just trying to be neutral in the middle you're going to get pushed over by a strong wind coming from one side you kind of need to be able to lean into it to um actually withstand it um and i don't know that it's it's harder it's harder to you know withstand something whilst at the very beginning standing neutral in the you know vertically in the middle you kind of need to lean in before it starts so you can start pushing back and i don't mind the idea of like journalism being uh, almost a bit adversarial almost like the you know the idea of the way the, the court works that so you have you test things by pushing on them um but what i'm more concerned about journalists not doing that I'm more concerned that if a journalist is basically so on board with what their interviewer is, interviewee is already, if they agree with them, then don't get them to do the end interview. Get the people who disagree to do the interviews. Maybe do have a, a stable of actually left and actually right journalists, and and actually have them, you know, have the ones from the other side testing, but have the other people there to make sure that you know who can be saying, no, hang on. That's 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 not actually on point. That's that's a that's a that hominem. That's a, a logical like have have you can have people who are um, neutral who can be like no no hang on that's that that argument there is not a valid argument. It's a logical flaw. It's a slippery slope. It's an ad hominem. Whatever. I, I think can, that actually draws a, a, another problem with journalism is they're taught to, to write to communicate, but they're not taught logic. They're not taught philosophy. 
they're not taught the, the core of what it is to be a human, and that is to test things with logic, to test things with with um, our own mental capacity, not just go, oh, okay, well, you say that, and therefore I have to accept it. And they're very bad at looking at, at um, you're trained to focus on the bloody game, the, you know, is it up and down for that political side, mm. or this thing, rather than stepping back and being like, where does that issue take us, sort of thing? Yeah, well, that's because they're part of the game, and 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 that's that's the cycle we're seeing. And and you know, I mean, I thought yesterday was a classic. I saw three journalists talking about, um, you know, insiders talking to each other and decrying it, but it was three insiders talking to each other and t- at the same time. And it's like, how can you have that conversation and still be doing it? You know, you're not you're not involving people who obviously had tweeted the original person. They're just keeping it amongst themselves. And it's like, well, if you think that the problem is that you're you're all being insiders and you're all being part of this internal community, then why aren't you bringing people in who aren't part of it, who can give a fresh point of view like, hey, I'm someone on Newstart and, you know, this is my view on what should happen here. Or, hey, I'm someone who works in a mine and this is my view on what should happen here. Well, how are they going to deal? How are they going to deal with the, the what, where we have basically the Australian version of Trump is now coming in? We're getting Clive Palmer throwing a huge amount of money to try and um, buy himself this influence, and and he's going from calling the liberals what like Heinrich Himmler and like Nazi mm. sort of references to making a political deal with them and at the same the time as he wants actually having spent the entire campaign up until this point referring to basically Clive Palmer as a crackpot, basically referring to him as being. Um, unreliable, uh, a bad person, not someone they want in the political sphere, and then going to making a deal with him. At the same time that he's got this giant mine that he wants to have right next to Adani, which is much bigger than Adani. Like, how terrifying is it, the idea that the Libs have made a deal with him, and if they were to win the election, how much do we think that they will actually um, properly assess that bloody mine? In terms of when they have the approvals. Like, that's terrifying. He's effectively... Has he just bought himself for the $30 million he spent on that advertising? Has he just bought himself, um, you know, a government habit that will have to work with him and give him what he wants with that giant mine? Who knows? Yeah, well, uh, th- and this is the thing. I mean, it, it kind of exposes how fake the whole, whole game is and how idiotic the rhetoric is and how just poorly thought out political manoeuvring is these days. You know, you you no longer have conviction politicians. You have people who are conviction politicians until they get a better deal. And that's, you know, that's not conviction. That's just that's just opportunism. Who who are we saying in this this situation is the conviction politician or the? No one in this no one in this specific situation. But the ones that do portray themselves as conviction politicians, like Tony Abbott, you know, when they get a good deal, they they suddenly are not so convictiony anymore with certain subjects. And and that's... I don't know. I don't know. I I I am pretty confident that the Greens are pretty persistent, consistently progressive, principled on most things. I don't. <laughs> I haven't seen them sell out yet. If they, when, the day they sell out is the day I go, well, screw you then. I'll, well, they, they I'll won't go. sell out, but they've got their own internal problems. And that's and this is this is my problem with the Greens at the moment is that, you know, they haven't dealt with their sexual harassment problems. Yeah, they, they have some stuff. They have some personnel. They have some the individuals. They have some issues with those sort of things and managing. But not not that they're bloody unique amongst their parties in that. Like, oh, no. They've all got for, problems. For sure. Anywhere where you've got men, basically. Yeah, they do need, but they do need to. They do need to back people more, and they do need to come out and support these policies, addressing it more. And they have, but they were very, they're very lax in it. They they lagged, and so now they've started doing something to um, 
better vet people. Well, they are. Tr- they're trying. They, they, they just. They, this stuff was. They just were bad. Not, at, Jeremy, you can excuse them all you want, but they did it. I'm badly. not excusing them. I agree, they did it badly. I did. It, badly. it fundamentally doesn't change in this. This first of all, I think they are trying to do something about it. I think they treated um, Ella, who was a uh, guest host a couple of weeks ago, who made the complaint about Jeremy Buckingham. Um, I think they treated her very badly, and the way they managed oh, that it, was a complete. It was atrocious. I mean, this this is the stuff that you know you should have. It should be splashed across front pages and it should be crucifying members of the Greens for because there is no acceptable way to react to react that way. You can't, you can't just turn around and say, hey, oh, we don't believe you because this guy's a star player. No. Oh, they didn't do that. They, they did a process, but it was a pretty, the process oh. was pretty flawed. It was, it was basically a, we desperately want to keep everybody happy. We don't disbelieve anybody. We don't, it was just a, it was a bit of a whitewash. And, but they, I mean, eventually they, they did stand up to Buckingham and he was kicked out. Um, but, or resigned. It was basically they. It, it, it got resolved that way. But I agree with you. I think it, I think they need to be better. But fundamentally, in terms of what they do, what all of their MPs do in Parliament, that that is reliably consistently regressive. And I know they're not going to do shit like the ALP up there. Um, you know, trying to speak, trying to be all things for people when they're down here in Melbourne. They're like, oh no, we'll, we'll definitely stand up to to Adani and Chris Bowen's like, oh no, I've, I'm I'm definitely on your side. I just can't say anything about it now because then it could be used to overturn my decision as the minister. So no, yeah, I'm, but then I'm, when they're up in uh, the Northern Territory, they start talking about coal seam gas mining and oh, well, when they're in Queensland, the they're like Valley and yeah, yeah, they try to um, they're saying in, in relation to Adani in Queensland, they're like, oh no, no, we're not we're not opposed to it. We didn't say we're opposed to it. Like yeah. we're just they, they try to be all things to all people, and and that's the that's the. That's but, what you get if you vote for a broader church party. But you don't know what they're going to do because they try. They've they've got to you know before the election they try to pretend they're on all you know they're all sides of every issue and then eventually they've got to make a decision. But you don't know which part which one they're going to go with. And that was the point I made last week was that they don't believe in anything strongly. They are like, oh, we mildly agree with this. We mildly agree with that. Yeah. You know, we <laughs> we we'll we'll increase new start a little bit eventually after we do a thing. Um, they 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 yeah they try to be. They try to have, be, have both sides of the coin, and they fail miserably. It's yeah, it's that small target politics that that you know it, it, it helped Rudd, you know. But that's the thing; I don't think to a point, yeah, to that, a point, and then and then it, then it bloody didn't because then he had to govern, and he couldn't work with anyone. No, because no one wanted to. No one wanted to play ball with him because he was. Well, just, and he didn't. He didn't want to play ball with anybody either. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that he's... I mean, if bloody Shorten's running this now, because um, Shorten's gone back and said, we're not going to negotiate with the Greens like Gillard did. Um, here he goes. This is, this is a quote from Shorten today. The Greens cost us action on climate change in 2009. I didn't come down in the last shower. Just because Richard Di Natale proposes a sequence of events does not make those ine- events inevitable. I'm not going to negotiate before an election what happens after an election. But what I am saying is we use the word mandate a lot in politics. It gets thrown around. In my case, though, I think people can genuinely accept we've been up front with people. We've got our mandate. They will be my negotiating instructions. The Greens really stuffed up climate change in the 43rd Parliament by their terms. I'm not going to sign up to a deal that damages our chances to deliver enduring action on climate change. Bill, yep. Bill gets stuffed. We remember what... So, for the record, and there's anybody listening to this who doesn't remember what happened in 2009, 2009, Rudd developed a policy with... Well, first of all, he had his... Um, his trading scheme, um, carbon pollution scheme that he came up with uh, that he couldn't get through. He negotiated then with bloody Malcolm Turnbull. Um, the the plan that they came up with involved was already one that, that all the environmental groups were very opposed to and were campaigning against because it was so so weak and so bad. But then when he negotiated with Malcolm Turnbull, he added, like, what was it, like, Five billion dollars worth of extra public money going to um, the biggest polluters. Was it fifty billion dollars? It was a huge amount of money going to the going to the biggest polluters. 
So they made a bad plan even worse. Then Malcolm Turnbull got rolled, and Rudd came over to the Greens and was like, cool, are you going to vote for my plan? And the Greens are like, no, we need to discuss it. And he's like, no, nah, take it or leave it. Like, he refused to negotiate with them. And ever since then, the ALP has been going, has been using this as an example that the Greens won't negotiate. The Greens wanted to negotiate, Labour refused to. Mm. And then in after the um, 2010 election, when Gillard had to work with the Greens, the Greens and the, Gillard and the Labour Party did negotiate a meaningful action on climate change, which actually worked. We reduced our emissions over that period. It it um it genuinely had the right the effect that was was needed, but um unfortunately it was completely stymied by the fact that before the election Gillard did what what um Shorten's trying to do now, which is she she tried to wedge the Greens and try to rule things in and out, and she's like I will not be um there will be no carbon tax under the government I lead, and we, I remember seeing her say that and be like. You, you idiot, why have you done that? You've just yep. wedged yourself into a corner on the, on the assumption that you're not going to have to deal with the Greens and you're going to have to break that bloody thing. And so then she does. And, and what she actually agrees to, I suppose, is not actually... I don't think... I mean, a carbon price is not a carbon tax. But they were able to scream that it was a carbon tax and then Gillard just conceded it. And then they, like, they completely <laughs> screwed themselves with by giving the Libs this free pass of it was a broken promise, which they then hammered them with until they lost. Like, And the, and the Labour Party blames the Greens for this shit. So, no, it's really depressing that, that people on Twitter do this shit. Oh, but, yeah. but for bloody Shorten today to being like, no, no, the Greens screwed us, screwed us from real climate change well, in 2009. No, they freaking didn't. We remember, you idiot. One of the things I find interesting, so he's been up in the Northern Territory, Shorten, and uh, he's talking about the Beetaloo Basin and uh, coal seam uh, coal seam gas extraction. And they're saying that a recent inquiry has shown that it could be at least four to five times the volume of greenhouse gas emissions as the Carmichael mine, if they do, so the Adani mine, if they do the basin. And it could equal 6% of the current gas emissions. Is this the Clive Palmer one or is this the... No, the... no, this is a Beedaloo Valley that uh, in Northern Territory that the Labour's talking about. Oh yeah, no, we, we'd allow gas fracking up here. Oh, the one that they announced. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so he's, he's talking they... about being up for car- for climate change. He's talking about dealing with carbon, but he's sitting there that uh, he's supporting, you know, coal seam gas extraction. He's supporting things that will create more emissions. And uh, how, I, and how do these things go quote, together? Have you got his quote there? Where he was, the same thing where he's bashing the Greens. He was also like, you know, these, these they, you know, they want to get rid of of uh, coal power plants by twenty thirty. But uh, you know, when they're getting on their mel- their trams, what do they think? You know, this, where they think the steel comes from? The quotes I don't have it in front of me, but basically, he's like, yeah, where, what do they think steel's made out of? And I guess. Um, uh, I think um, Senator um, Jordan Steele's, as he pointed, the Green Senator pointed out, like we don't have a plan that you can't use coal for making steel. That's totally different. That's not a power. That's not a coal power station. Like, yeah, until there's a sub and a substitute. Of course, we recognise that you need to use coal for that to make steel. We're not opposed to having steel. Like, yeah, the, the and way look, that- there's, there's even ways to reduce the amount of coal that you use um, to produce steel. Like, there's, there's arc furnaces and things like that that, you know... But coal in steel yeah. is not creating greenhouse gases. Like, that's... Well, it, it's- yeah, it's, it's going to create some, but it's not going to create it on the level of, say, you know... I mean, we're lucky that Hazelwood shut down, you know. that's That was that was an immense impact on the environment and an, an immense impact on, on greenhouse gas emissions for Australia. But, you know, we can, we can end coal burning for... For energy, that's quite easy to do. You look at the UK. They even had the, the coal lobby in the UK, you know, praising the fact that they went for, what is it, 90 hours without burning a single piece of coal. Yeah. Well, um, let's let's leave with the, the last, the other mine thing that we discovered this week being the uranium mine. Denise, do you want to tell us about that? Well, and 
this is one of those great situations where you were talking about um, Scott Morrison, you know, just throwing information at us until we, uh, we, we just sort of listen and give in. Well, this is a, a, an example of the Morrison government doing something very quietly and the media actually finding out and publicizing it. So basically, the Morrison government signed off on a uranium mine in uh, north of Kalgoorlie, about 500 kilometers north of Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, the day before caretaker mode. And then they released it but on they, the day before Anzac Day. they didn't even release it as so much. Like They didn't put any press release. They didn't put anything out. They just uploaded the approval documents to the Environment website. Okay. And I hope that nobody on the day before Anzac Day was no, going to be paying attention exactly, to catch it. Exactly. The day before Anzac Day. So the Western Australia, this mine needs both state and federal approval. The Western Australia ex-liberal government approved it about a week before they went into caretaker mode. Right. That is um, under a court challenge by the traditional owners of the land because it's a huge swathe of land that they're talking about. And previously, the government, uh, the federal government said that they wouldn't make a decision while it was still under this court challenge. But when they talked to the owner of the Canadian company that is uh, pr- uh, proposing this uranium mine, they were like, yeah, you know, no, we told them that that's irrelevant. And so we... Do you have something you want to say to us as, as a person from that country? No. Did you have a word that you feel like, like, you know, saying clearly? Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> our, our daughter says it that way now. Yes. She says sorry. Our daughter has like started like walking, and she bumps into you, goes sorry, and keeps going. Anyway, not my fault. That's, that's so shonky. Like trying to squeeze it out. Just that's the whole thing. Like but the thing is, so this court case. So in December, uh, Ms. Price said in an interview that they wouldn't make a decision while the court case is pending. The court case is still pending, and they just made a decision. And you know, the guy from the company said, "Oh no, it's they're, they're totally relevant. They're they're not related at all." Apparently, there's 32 environmental controls that need to be met in order for it to be allowed. So they, Ms. Price's office, well, they uh, said that they have n- complete confidence that this company will meet all 32 of them. It does feel like they've deliberately squeezed out this whole, um, mm. squeeze out the election for as long as possible so they can get all these dodgy things sort of sneakily done before. Like, I'm, I, who, do, who do you think, who do you think from the uh, Liberal Party is going to end up working for that company uh, immediately after this election? Oh, there'll be someone on the board. Yeah. Of the Australian, the Australian branch, absolutely. <sighs> all right. So what can we hope? So that, that's that's uh, what's been happening as what seems likely to happen. What. What do you reckon we can do about it? Let's, let's, uh, do we have any, any you know, optimistic messages can, to convey today? Well, we can block Chris Ullman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hashtag block Chris Ullman. I mean, I think that's... Look, does it, does it achieve a great deal for the country? Not really. Is it mildly satisfying? Yes, very. Um, it's very mildly satisfying. Um, will it annoy Chris Ullman? Almost certainly. Well, there have been a couple good announcements this week. Um, from the Labour Party, funnily enough. They've pledged $107 million to battle Indigenous disadvantage in the justice system, including more legal aid money, more legal uh, services, um, uh. counselling services. They have uh, promised to double the coalition target on domestic violence, and whereas a lot of the coalition... Hang on, hang on. maybe repass that, because like, it's not like we want to double domestic violence. <laughs> the coalition to, only wants this much domestic violence. To double the we... amount of money promised by the coalition in the most recent budget on, on domestic violence, and, and where the coalition which... wanted to put a whole lot of money into one of the things that anyone who works in domestic violence says is the worst idea, which is family counselling, so mm. that you know couples can work through it, which they say actually, all the experts say, increases the chance of family violence and 
and of yeah. the people being injured or harmed. A lot of it goes into emergency housing, um, new emergency shelters, local grants for local communities already like for local organizations already doing that. Mm-hmm. So that that's a good thing. Um, and well, just um, on on that one. Um, my only problem with that is it is purely targeted at women, and as someone who is a survivor of domestic violence, I, I have, I tried to get services, I tried to get funding. There is nothing for men, and men domestic violence survivors just we've got to maybe think about that a bit more. We're seeing it in the UK, um, a bit more targeting for male survivors of domestic violence because the statistics are showing um, that it is a lot more prevalent than than people see. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely won't argue that one of the things that labor has committed to do is legislating that 10 days domestic violence leave, as well as the um, $10,000 assistance that people can access uh, people escaping domestic violence, which is a not gendered situation. So that is not um, they are. I do agree that. There is definitely an issue, but I also agree that more money needs to be put into the system. And the thing, one of the things they have targeted, which I think is really important, is they are targeting families with older children. Because one of the issues is when people leave with older children, they have a hard time finding even emergency housing. Um, And so you're right. There are still many gaps. There are many, many gaps uh, to be seen, but it's it's a start. It's certainly um, better than what the Libs have done, which was, was yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. they basically cut it in their time. In and um, the they also the Labour government also said they would ban the Labour government. You're, you're not, Scott so Morrison makes that mistake too. So, yeah, you would think you would think from the way the election campaign is being run oh, that the, 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 it was actually a Labour government and the Liberals were the opposition. The the Labour Party has also promised to uh, ban gay conversion therapy. Yes, um, which caused Scummo to say that well, well he doesn't believe in it and doesn't think it's effective it's a thing for the states um a cu- the day later a couple people in the liberal party have started saying well actually it's been scientifically disproven so we're really not behind it so let's be clear about this there's, not, there's nothing in there that's about actual freedom of the people affected because no the people who are being sent to these things are, are doing it because they're basically they're basically victims of abuse at that point mm. and they're being sent off so that they can be abused some more oh, by yeah, some by more 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 you know qualified experienced abusers they've yes. been gaslit into doing it um or yeah. bullied into doing it and that's oh, honestly or absolutely I, just yeah. straight out forced yeah yeah and it's it's honestly for me the, the the idea that you can convert someone is just i mean that's that is heinous that is a yeah. heinous act even just to think it so as much as i i you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest proponent of the Labour Party, um, but they have actually made some announcements this week that I oh, can yeah. get behind. There is enough in this election where the ALP has clearly earned a preference above the Libs. Like, one the, the the fact that they're going to do something about the franking credits for, for a start. I mean, yeah. the amount of money for that, which is more than the amount of money that goes into um, the bloody un- unemployment. Yeah, but the, um like the amount of money that we're giving to rich people for owning shares who don't pay any tax, oh. or who think that they're self-funded, despite the fact they don't pay tax, but they definitely use public services. Yeah. As in addition to the you know money that we actually freaking give them, like they're not you're not self-funded, okay? <laughs> you're yeah. not self. This is this is a lie you're telling yourself. Anyway, so no, they probably definitely deserve preference, but because of I, the environmental stuff feeling. and the refugees and stuff, I'm still going to put the Greens ahead, but because I, I know that's just as powerful as kicking the libs. But yeah, yeah no, I, I agree with you that the Labour Party's definitely, definitely earned the, the preference above the libs. Even even the shit that they're doing attacking the Greens, which is dumb, and we'll come back to bite them because, as I said at the beginning, fundamentally what they're doing is making it harder for them to have to work with the Greens to work with the Greens when they later have to. Because and they're also giving giving the Conservative media this this stick to beat them with, which is. Are you going to work with the Greens? You're going to work, got to rule out working with the Greens because you've agreed that they're extremists. They're you know they're extremists. They can't be negotiated with. You've got to rule them out. And how is the Labor Party going to go? The Labor Party's then creating a situation for itself where it's got to go. Yeah, no, we definitely won't work with the Greens. And then when they have to, they're like, yeah. "There's that lie that they can be hung on." 
Um, or if they uh, don't make that promise, then the conservative media can bash them and be like, why won't you rule out working with these extremists? Yeah. Like, the only way to address that problem is to not agree with the conservative lines about them. But the, the problem there, though, is that Labor have spent the last three years calling the Greens extremists themselves, you know? and yeah. that's, it's, Stop doing that shit. Yeah, it doesn't it's, like, help. it's dumb. You're making a rod for your own back there, and it's, it's, it's just... Yeah, as you said, if, if your aim, if your aim is to stop progressive people like us voting for the Greens, it ain't working because we're not dumb enough to fall for that shit. No, like, the only people that the Labor attack on the Greens works on are keeping Labor voters who don't really understand our preferences work and who, uh, you know, aren't really very <laughs> wedded to what's going on. Like, yeah, you can probably scare some of them away from from giving a preference to the Greens, particularly if you tell them that it helps the Liberals somehow. If you give them the idea that voting one Greens, two Labor, three Liberal, somehow is a weaker anti-Liberal vote. If you get them to, if, if people don't understand how preferences work, and they're like, yeah, but I only voted two for Labor, surely that's a weaker one and it'll help the Libs. No, because if the Greens don't get up, your vote goes at full value to the Labor Party. Like, no, you know, it just takes money away from Labor. Yeah. They're $2.75. <laughs> Speaking of... Uh... Journalists, while we've been having this podcast, apparently Eliza Barr was at a Fraser Anning press conference in Sydney, and some of his supporters didn't like her questioning, followed her out of the, um, followed her out yelling sexist and other things at her. Oh, this her. was a Cronulla. Yeah. Okay. So yelling sexist and other things at her. The, um, the news, uh, her cameraman tried to take photos of the people, and one of the kids, actually, one teenager, a 19 year old, actually attacked him, ripped his t shirt, and has been arrested. <laughs> Go Fraser Anning for having high quality supporters. I think that the I also think that the police have kind of encouraged us. But obviously, the, the, the Victorian police were involved in the um, how they dealt with the egging incident, as opposed to the New South Wales police who'd be dealing with Cronulla. Oh, yeah, you can see the photograph of the, the photographer's shirt ripped. Um, but uh, I, I mean, the the fact that they, I mean, I think the Victorian police are prosecuting the some of the people who assaulted the egg boy. Yeah, the Melbourne. guy, the guy who kicked him because that's a. Uh, um that's like that's a proper crime. Like that, that's I think two years. It's an assault. Yeah, it's but it's yeah. like okay. You can well, that's assault, assault by kicking. Yeah, that's actually like that's, it's, yeah. it's assault with a weapon. Um, I think. Well, no, it's it. assault by kicking. But yeah, yeah. video footage yeah. shows the 19-year-old hitting the photographer in the face several times. Cool. So presumably that 19-year-old will get charged. But I think I think the police dropped the ball by not charging um, Fraser Anning because yeah. this this line that it was self-defense, like maybe he can argue that the first swing around punch was self like it was a re- reaction to being attacked. But he pauses, stops, and then goes again. Yeah. And that is that is an assault. Like it's caught on camera. That should he should have been prosecuted for that. Yeah, for like, sure. He should. The idea that they've sort of given him a pass. Maybe maybe that's why his supporters think that they can. I mean, but that, I mean that is classic fascist stuff too. Like you know, fascists. Are, I, I actually listen to a podcast. There's a podcast called Behind the Bastards where they look into you know history's worst worst people. But you know, up to, up to current people, including um, you know one, one of the recent ones. The, the one on that they've just done on the Mueller report is definitely worth having listened to. But. Um, God, the ones on Paul Manafort and so there are some terrible. Anyway, uh, the one on the center of the moment is, is about Oswald Mosley, uh, and so it's an interesting um, go back to the way that uh, the anti-fascists dealt with the British fascists between the wars um, and the Cable Street uh, fight, where they basically um, they the anti-fascists. So this was basically Jewish people and communists and socialists and so forth standing up because the police had gone. No, no, you can the, the fascists can march through this Jewish neighbourhood and, and scream their fascist stuff. That's fine. We'll come along with them. Um, but yeah, the huge collection of people stood up to stop them. Uh, the police were there with their their um, horses. The kids threw marbles underneath them so that the horses 
couldn't go forward and they stayed back and the, the police called off the march and the fascists didn't get to do it and it was, it, the anti-fascist thing actually worked and they were the same people who'd be still at that time screaming out but freedom of speech yeah. let us let us you know we've got to tell you about our message of fascism pre pre-world war ii we've got to tell us about the the exact same yeah anyway um, I, I actually had an argument with my ex last night about this is um, she was dropping the kids off and we had a discussion and she's like, oh, you know, you're, you're a bit too extremist with your, you know, you, everything's black and white. I said, look, no, not everything's black and white. But I said, you know, if you're a fascist, if you're a Nazi, if you're a white supremacist, sorry, but you're going to get called on it and you're going to get, you should be ostracized. You shouldn't be trying to convince these people. There is no convincing them. They, this ideology is something that is self-reinforcing. If I try to convince them, that's just reinforcing that their ideology is true. And, and and it's not a harmless ideology. We've got some pretty clear evidence <laughs> from, from, you know, not that far away history. Uh, I believe we just had Anzac Day. I'm fairly sure that we remember exactly where that ideology leads to. And that's, you know, that's a sad thing. You can bet all these guys are all like, oh, yeah, Anzac Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, wait a minute. You're the guys that these soldiers fought against and killed. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Oh, who was that? Who was who it that tweeted yesterday, that yesterday or on it? Oh, something about yeah, the, the, how many of the people... You know, how many current Nazis are going to be congratulating themselves on their family's history of fighting, fighting Nazis? Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Madness. All right. Um, Kieran and Denise, thank you so much for coming back for another episode of the podcast. Uh, well, Denise, back for another episode of the podcast. Kieran, your first episode, so welcome. Um, Kieran, people can find you on the Twitters at, at, at Sortius. Yes, indeed, and thank you for having me. Uh, and Denise, people can find you on the Twitters and at Deansy. That is correct. Normally, normally I make guests say their own Twitter handles, but I happen to know your two Twitter handles, so I'll, I'll say them. Uh, and people can find me on special. Twitter. Well, in fact, they can comment. You know, if you're talking with me about the podcast, at Well May We Say uh, on, on Twitter is the is the place to find us and and uh, have a chat about the things that we've been talking about tonight. Thank you uh, to everybody who has left a positive review on iTunes. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. You're how the podcast keeps going. Uh, thank you, Alex Lum, for the artwork. Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music. And we'll see you all next week. See you then. Yeah. Bye.